everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange, we always like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week, we're going to be talking to Judy. She has had a really interesting veterinary career, which all started on our silver screens in the TV show Young Vets. And later in our clinical discussion, we are going to be talking to our very own Liz Bode about the management of aortic thromboembolism in cats. Just introduce myself, my name is Scott and I am one of the founders of ETX and I'm a Royal College and European recognised specialist in small animal internal medicine. I am normally joined by my friend Karen and podcast producer. She's taking a little break this week so I am <laughs> flying solo. I have to be honest and say that, um, so as a vet myself, I like to watch a lot of the programs that have vets on them. Now, some vets might be like cringing and thinking that's the worst thing ever. So I love watching Super Vet and I love watching all the programs at Yorkshire Vet and everything. I know, oh, do you hate that already? So, but you can't really be too critical because the reason ultimately that I know who you are is because I watched you on television. So, um, and, and I just thought it might be nice to, to just to start by you know, maybe explaining a little bit about that and how, how do you, how do you, as a vet student, end up popping up on our screens? How does that happen? Oh, the people I have to sleep with, Scott. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I'm you're kidding. not. No, I... <laughs> <laughs> Look at me. This is a good No, thing. no, no. Really no I, um, so basically what happened was, um, and actually, do you know what? If I hadn't failed third year at vet mm -hmm. school and therefore had to repeat it, I would mm. never have been on Young Vets. So okay. every cloud. Um, yeah. <laughs> so essentially, um, the BBC sent out an email. In fact, it wasn't on BBC. It was ITN Productions mm. sent out uh, an email to, to the RVC, where I was mm -hmm. studying. And that got forwarded to all of the fourth years that were going to go into their final year, their rotations. Um, and the, essentially, they were looking for volunteer students to be on a new... Um, a fly on the wall documentary type program uh, just following final year vet students to see what it takes to be a modern day vet and the, the the daily comings and goings of being a student vet and I'm not a risk taker by any means um, <laughs> but I thought maybe I'll just apply they basically all they wanted you to do was send a paragraph about yourself to them and so I did and thought no more of it, really, because I thought, well, I'm not going to get on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then there was an open, open, I don't want to say audition because it wasn't that. There was an open meeting where you could go and they were just chatting to you in groups. Um, and then they did a little one to one. Uh, and I went to that. Uh, luckily, thank you to um, Adrian Boswell, who let me out of cardio rotations to go to that. All <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So it's him you've got to blame. Um, <laughs> And uh, so I went to that and yeah, again, thought no more of it. I thought I saw all the people that were there and ah, some of them were really hungry to be on telly. <laughs> she was shining through. Um, and I just thought, ah, they're not going to pick me. I'll, I'll leave yeah. it now. And anyway, about a couple of days later, they emailed me and said, look, if you're interested, we'd really, really like to, to have you as one of the, the students we follow. And I thought, you know, what have I got to lose? So I checked with my rotation group first. That was the first thing. And if any of them would have had a problem with the camera following us, I would have said no. Luckily, they were all very good um, uh, and, and were quite happy for me to do it. One said, that's fine. I just don't want to be on camera. So mm -hmm. the camera person just stayed well away from them. And they were told, don't stand near Judy. <laughs> and you won't be in the shot. Um, mm -hmm. And that was it. The rest, as they say, literally is history. 
unfortunately. So if you if you weren't in that kind of, I, I, I'm sure there were some people that were maybe just a bit fame hungry. Um, so if you kind of didn't fall into that category, what what kind of, I don't know, is it what made you think, oh, this is something that I want to sort of go for? Um, I don't know. I think I just thought it would be interesting to see mm. how a TV show is, is yeah. made. That would be interesting. Yeah. Who, whoever gets to see that in their life. Yeah. Um, and I suppose... I suppose if I tell you what the last sentence of my paragraph that I sent into them was, this will give you an idea. Mm. They asked, if you weren't going to be a vet, what would you be? Mm. And my last paragraph said, if I wasn't going to be a vet, I'd give it a go at being a stand-up comedian. Is that really so, true? I, I would give it a go. Why not? I mean, it would, oh, wow. it would take some balls, which I don't have, just clarify. Yeah. But it would, it would take some nerve to, you know, to actually get up on stage and do that. But there's a little bit, a little bit of me that, that, is wants to be an entertainer and it's a real weird dichotomy in my character because I kind of like being the center of attention but I don't like being the center of attention sure. it's very odd very and it's very situational as well very weird. I, I think that's it's funny isn't it because actually I've heard a lot of famous people but people that are maybe in the performing arts and different things that there is kind of that slight enjoyment of it but also some of them are pathologically like Adele is pathologically you know, scared. I love, I've just compared you to Adele, by the way. That, 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 you, I that, love you because I love Adele. And if Adele's listening by any small chance, Adele, Adele, we need to go out for a night. Because and Adele, you need off. to come, you need to come on the podcast. Um, she would, she would be a great laugh though, wouldn't she? Um, I she think, would, and that laugh. Um, I know, I know, but it's funny, isn't it? She literally physically sometimes vomits before going on stage and was really against you. Yeah. So I think it, it can be something. So I think for me, um, and I'm sure I'm not the only one that felt this, is that I honestly think you came across extremely well on that show. And so I, I do think you uh, are very likable. You came across in that way. Did you, what was your kind of, feeling about the way you were perceived and the kind of feedback that you got from that well first of all thank you thank you that's, that's <laughs> very good very nice for you to say and I appreciate that I really do and I mean it's interesting because obviously I didn't announce it to to everybody that I was going to be on it my, my family and close friends knew obviously um mm -hmm. some of them were in it um but wider friendships and acquaintances and people who knew me didn't know obviously I was going to be on it and I was inundated with messages when the first uh, episode went out um in fact one of my friends uh, who now lives in Australia said that she was just um sorting the kids out in the living room and she heard my voice and she couldn't work out why she could hear my voice and she turned around and I was on the tv behind her and she said it was so odd um to hear your voice and see you on the telly but the overwhelming feedback I had from friends and family was that that was you you were literally 100% oh, okay. you on the telly, how you are in real life. And yeah. I was. Um, I, I didn't change how I was at all. I, I, I toned down the swearing, I'll be honest. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, I was literally me. Uh, that's how I am. Um, so, but it was fun. It was so much fun. And I never really had any, any negative feedback from it. I was expecting a backlash. And, and we were told do an internet search of yourself before mm -hmm. this airs. Uh, they were very good at protecting us. They said, 
do an internet search of yourself before this airs because if there's anything on there you know, your mobile telephone number or your address is on yell.com or something then mm -hmm. you need to to do an internet wipe uh, because you know you're going to be people are going to know who you are so i did that that was fine which was scary given that i'd run my own business for six years before vet school and all i'd done is try and get my telephone number out on the internet <laughs> so mm -hmm. that was scary um but as far as how i was portrayed there were some students who were quite worried and concerned about how it was going to be spun mm -hmm. or edited and how they were going to be portrayed and you know we signed over complete editorial rights to the production company we had no say in how it went or how we were portrayed how it was edited at all so there was that risk element and you had to trust them um but they promised us throughout that it we can only show what we film they weren't going to spin it they weren't going to edit it weirdly and they didn't and i for one, I don't, can't speak for the others, obviously, but myself, 110% happy with how I was portrayed because it's exactly as it happened. Um, it was never edited weirdly to make it look, um, you know, back to front or out of sync. It was as it happened. As you saw it, it's as it mm -hmm. happened. And I, mm -hmm. I was very happy with it, to be honest. I can't complain about it at all. And, you know, I've had great, great things come from it as well. So I'll be forever grateful. Why do you think people at home are interested in watching a show about a final year vet student or final year vet students and I, I think if I can answer you know my, my kind of perception of that is there is this interest in veterinary medicine and this interest in veterinary surgeons and nurses or whatever the, the career because I think a lot of people sitting at home will be doing that thing they'll be saying oh I would have loved to have been a vet but I, I, I didn't I couldn't do it because I didn't want to put animals to sleep or whatever people would say and so I think there is this kind of like perception of veterinary medicine that potentially these shows play into a little bit because they, I don't know, maybe you disagree. Do they fully represent what we go through on a daily basis? I, you know, not always. So I think kind of leading into this point that you've just made, the perception and idea of veterinary medicine that I had when I was 12, when I was trying to pursue this career, is completely different from what being a vet is actually like. And so where has that disconnect come in? Why is it, why has that happened? And how do we stop that from happening to other vets coming through? Because I think it's important you know what you're getting yourself into. Very. I think partly you answered your own question at the beginning of what you were just saying, is that I don't think there really are any TV shows that really 100% represent what it's like to be a vet on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, you know, 90% of vets are doing the daily drudge and clients only get to see them for their 15, 10 minute consult and then a follow-up phone call maybe with results later and a plan, etc. Um, and the TV shows that are on are, I suppose, somewhat deliberately made to look they've got to be interesting okay so they're not going to show you the boring drudgery of me spending hours looking at lab results and then making phone calls and all that kind of stuff they're going to show you the exciting stuff because that's mm -hmm. what makes a good tv show it makes it mm -hmm. interesting but i think there is a place for a tv show that really does actually represent what vets are on about and it's not even that you have to follow a vet from eight o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night six days a week it's not that I think highlighting some of the struggles that vets have in the, the profession is a hard one to do. You know, as you've alluded to earlier, the emotional roller coaster alone 
of being a vet is something that I think people don't really recognize. Um, they, they, you said yourself that certain people will say, I wanted to be a vet, I'd love to have been a vet, but I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do the bit where you have to put animals to sleep. And I hear mm -hmm. that a lot. I'm sure as vets, we all hear that a lot. Mm -hmm. But, you know, most of us, 99% of us, luckily never ever have to put a, a healthy animal to sleep. Um, mm -hmm. There are exceptions, obviously, but we don't have to do that. So I always make peace with the fact that I'm putting an animal to sleep because I'm doing it because it's the best thing for that animal. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not playing God. Um, I'm not making the decisions. I'm looking at the animal. I'm making a judgment. I'm looking at the ethics, the morals, all of that. And I'm guiding the owners. And quite often you get owners that will come in. They want you to make the decision for them or they want you to confirm their decision. Mm -hmm. Not because they want to rid themselves of guilt. No one who puts a, a sick animal to sleep really should feel guilt if it's what's best for the animal. Um, but it can be difficult, the, the roller coaster that we're on. And I don't think that um, the public really see that all the time, it's, which is a shame. Um, because they always see us when we're doing their vaccines and we're happy and we're bouncy yeah. and like, yay, you've got a new puppy. Um, but actually, it's not always like that. Sometimes sometimes we are crying in the corner or rocking ourselves in the toilet at lunchtime yeah. because it's like, oh my God, the hell is this day? Could it get any worse, literally? Mm -hmm. um, and people don't see that. And I think it's important that that's reflected on telly and it could be a program about the issues that we, we mm -hmm. struggle with. The, the ins and outs of being a vet, the side of veterinary medicine you don't see, maybe. So if anyone's listening from any television production companies, that's the idea. It's out there now. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so, absolutely. I um, think it needs to be done. You came to veterinary medicine. I'm not, this is not some ageist comments, slightly later in your career. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and so I'm always, that's an interesting journey because you're not, a 17, 18 year old that's made that decision, you're a more seasoned uh, life uh, experiencer. I don't, I mean, I just made that up. I don't, you know what I mean? Like you've, you've obviously <laughs> clearly, ex you've experienced life and yeah. then you've thought to yourself, actually, I'm going to pursue this career in veterinary medicine. So, and you just, and you talked about having your own business. I really want to know what that is <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, well, essentially I'll, I'll try and make a long story short. Um, I did tell my careers advisor at school that I wanted to be a vet. Um, and he pretty much all but laughed in my face and said, you're not clever enough, Judy. Uh, which he then followed up with, why don't you be a vet nurse instead? Which is a massive slap in the Ooh, face to all vet nurses. Yeah, um, so I apologize on his behalf to all nurses. Um, so I believed him. I was one of those kids who respected the opinion of people in positions of power so a teacher or you know somebody who's older than me that knows knows better in inverted commas than me so i believed him i, I wasn't one of those kids who was like do you know what no stuff you i actually am going to do it i'm from a solid working class background where we don't do things like that <laughs> traditionally we just go okay uh, and go out and get a job um but it was always there i always wanted to do it um and then yeah so so years later obviously i um I did go back to college uh, and do animal care, more of a vocational BTEC sort of uh, diploma. Aced that, literally, was really good at that because it was more vocational. I was never really academic, as it were. I know that sounds stupid, me saying that, that I wasn't academic because people say we have to be academic to be a vet. But I wasn't. I was mediocre, always mediocre at school. Um, so I did my animal care course and then I, w I did a zoology degree. And that sounds really straightforward that I went from college to animal care, uh, sorry, to zoology. 
but I didn't. It's just this UCAS form appeared on the desk in front of me one day at college, and, and I said to the, the lecturer, what, what is this? I'd never heard of UCAS. I have no idea what UCAS was. What is this? Uh, and she said to me, well, why don't you apply to go and do zoology um, at university? And I thought, Julian University doesn't go in the same sentence. No. She said, look, apply anyway. See what happens. So I applied, and I got on. Got on the course. I was accepted. And basically spent three years um, at the University of Surrey thinking, how the hell have they not seen that I'm here yet? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they're coming now. They're coming to get me now. Yeah, Yeah. I know, right. They're coming to get me now. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. absolutely. Every time I did an exam, I thought, that's it, that's it, I'll fail. (laughs) Game over. Yeah, this is it. This is it. You know, to the point where professors would walk up the corridor and they're looking at me and I think, this is it. They're coming. They're coming for me. Um, But they never did. They never did. And I got through it. You never got found out. I never got found out. Um, But you know, that imposter syndrome has stayed with me to this day. But but the self-doubt, the self-doubt that that careers advisor put in me is still there at the back of my head. Still there. So, you know, yeah it says a lot when someone can say a couple of sentences to you and it can change your entire path of your life isn't that so that's really powerful like I think and it makes me like so conscious that sort of thing about how I speak to my children and and how powerful is that like that's still on your shoulder a bit today you know those words all teachers need to listen and be like you know that's it's amazing that it's amazing I would hope it's very different now I would really hope it's very different now I imagine there's somewhat of a, a, not a class thing, but a demographic difference. You know, mm. if you're in a, in a city school and you say you want to be a vet, no kid from that school has ever gone to vet school. They're probably not going to be really 110% behind you because they don't want you to fail, I guess. Um, but, you know, if you go to certain other private schools or colleges, then that's, you want to be, yeah, you're all going to be vets and you're all going to be doctors and you're all going to be dentists, you're all going to be yeah. lawyers. There is that split. I don't think anybody can deny that. No, but I think, I think right. the, the, the power of just, you know, a few words can change mm-hmm. somebody's life. It can change mm-hmm. somebody's outlook. It can change somebody's opinion of themselves, both in a positive and a negative way. Mm-hmm. Um, that careers advisor did it to me. Many parents, yeah, do it to their kids. And some of it can be deliberate, but many, many, many oftentimes it's, it's not deliberate at all um you just don't know what you're saying but i think that sort of that ties in nicely as well with what we were saying about uh clients sometimes not understanding the power mm. of what they say to their vet particularly mm-hmm. if they're they're upset with what's happening or the process or the communication or uh, the costs <laughs> or what's being advised they, they can say a few sentences to a vet and that really can be the straw that breaks the camel's back sometimes you know if it's at mm-hmm. the end of a really long period where you're struggling and you've had a lot of things go wrong and and you'll be aware of this there's a saying you know that you come home some days and you say oh, i was dr death today and and they're the days where you have done it seems nothing but put animals to sleep all day mm-hmm. for various reasons and if you get a day like that and then at the end of that day somebody comes in and is really having a go at you those few words they say which really mean nothing to them they walk out and they get on with their day and they carry on mm. with their life to you that can stick in your mind and that can really 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 do harm to your mindset so with, ha- with all of this on board and, and with all the experience you have now what do, you mentioned a little bit how do you then manage and and treat the veterinary students or or students that are seeing practice with you do you uh, with all of this in mind are you doing something different to better prepare them 
for the reality of veterinary medicine do you think have you got a different strategy well, uh yes there are, i suppose i have um because i am very much heart on sleeve what you see is what you get i won't sugarcoat things for vet students um i'm nice and i'm fun and, and i crack jokes all day and, and what have you but i'm not going to sugarcoat it i i you know if they think they're coming in they're going to work you know 10 till 4 they're not going to work 10 till 4 they're going to work my shift and they're going to do that all week or all for the fortnight they're with me vet students are slightly different um i'll come on to them in a minute but i would say you know for people younger kids who come on work experience so they want to go to vet school they always and this is probably the case everywhere but it's certainly been the case that i've experienced that they come in at 10 o'clock or nine o'clock and then they go home by four mm. and i've even started evening consults at four mm. <laughs> my day isn't over till seven eight actually ten o'clock at night sometimes mm. um depending on the shift pattern that i'm on um so actually i think school kids get the impression that this is great and they they never come into a consult when there's a pts when there's a euthanasia because it's too uh, sad they, because it's too sad we don't want to expose them to that but also mm -hmm. fine I, I agree that obviously you've got to respect the owners um yes some some owners you can approach them and say look we have a student in would you mind if they were present fine others absolutely that is not the situation and the place to be bringing a, a student into the room but I think they need to come in and really shadow the vet properly, you know, so mm -hmm. the school kid gets an idea of what it's like to actually be a vet. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, they have to do the Saturday, they have to do the bank holiday, they have to be on call at night time. You, know? mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to know these things so you can make an act, an, an educated uh, choice in whether you actually want to do this profession or not. Because all you see on telly is people playing with puppies and cuddling kittens and it's great and there's happy music. And mm -hmm. it's not always like that. You know, no. we all know it's not always like that. But vet students obviously are a bit more aware of that. They've seen that. They stay in the room for PTSs. They sometimes do the PTSs. Um, so I think it's important that we do show students that we are only human. We're not infallible. Even people like yourself who are, you know, amazing referral vets and do wonderful things that I could never dream of being able to do, need to be able to show vet students that you're actually not Superman or Superwoman. You are a human being. And mm -hmm. you struggle just like everyone else. And at some point in their career, they are going to struggle. And it's important that we make them aware of that. But it's more important that we make them aware of where to go to get help when that happens. Yeah. Um, we spoke briefly before about the three, four year wobble. It's a thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it might not happen at three to four years. It might happen at seven or eight. It might happen at one. I don't know. But you will have a wobble at some point. Something will happen and it will cause you to wobble. Uh, your confidence will go. Uh, your love of the job will go something will happen mm -hmm. and you need to be able to ride that when it happens um, mm -hmm. and I think that I, happens to us all don't you think I mean that really I couldn't agree with that more and you know it it, it, it can hit you it can hit you just from so my own experience of exactly what you've just said I was in my first referral job after my residency and I'd been in there for a few years and I remember sitting in the consulting room one day and I was listening to what the client was saying and I was thinking, I don't, I don't care. I don't care. Mm -hmm. I don't, I honestly, I really, I don't care what you're saying. I don't care. I really just want to stand up and walk out of this building and never come back. Like, and it literally was as real as that. I was just thinking, God, I've got to listen to this. I've got to make this. And I was like, I just don't care. And that for, for some, like we've just said, for some, for a profession where actually caring is, inherently what we do that was my point where i was like oh god 
something has to change because this is terrible. Yeah, but you were, you saw that and you recognised it. So to a point, you were lucky that you actually clocked it and you caught yeah. it and you realised what was happening and presumably put steps in place to, to help that and reverse it and, and get you back on track. It's the vets who don't that mm. we need to worry about. And we do need to be there. And there has been, I know we've got the wonderful vet life and people who have spoken to them have mm -hmm. said they're absolutely brilliant and they're amazing. And there's been an explosion in recent years of people, many vets actually, trying to start organisations or charities um, to help vets and vet nurses and students. And there are places where you can go, even to the point now where they help you, you know, sort your finances, etc. cetera. Um, yeah. But are they getting to that 24-year-old who's sitting in the toilets crying through that whole lunch break? Mm. Are they? I don't know. Because those are the people that perhaps aren't equipped to come and get the help. We need to go in and find those people. And we have, we have the ability to do it. We just need every single practice to be aware of it and be open to it and understand that this help actually is needed sometimes. What are your plans from a career point of view? Are you, what, a what are you thinking? Of view. A queer point of Oh, your accent. A career point of view. Thank you. Oh gosh, we've what gone there. We've me. gone. We've gone there. Right. Uh, <laughs> a well, career. Look, um, a career point of view. Well. Yeah. So I guess uh, where am I? Now? I've been a vet for six years now. Um, yeah. And I haven't loved every minute of it. I'm not going to lie. Um, there have been some hard times. There have been mm. some depressing times there have been some really nasty times where I've just gone home and cried every day for different reasons not just because I had a doctor death day but other reasons as well you know workplace bullying uh, all sorts all sorts I've been through the whole gambit of emotions being a vet um, but I suppose career ambitions I've never been one who wants to be you know uh, uh, aim for the stars kind of oh I need to be the best I feel bad that I don't have massive ambitions to be a massive you know surgeon surgeon or a medical expert i just want to be a first opinion vet and i want to be a really good first opinion vet and i want to be the best first opinion vet i can be and good. that's what's important to me yeah and, and i and just don't feel as bad about saying i want to be a first opinion vet no no you shouldn't like for so for so many reasons yeah i think that that's probably something that needs to be shouted from our rooftop like that is that's enough. And I think I certainly fell foul of the fact that, you know, going through vet school, it's so tough, the whole thing. And then you're just like, oh, no, but I need to do more and more and more and more and more. And I've said in previous podcasts that I have done more and more and more and more and more and become more and more and more and more and more unhappy. So it doesn't, it's not, you know, it's not, that's not a perfect solution, just getting more and more qualifications or whatever else. And so actually being comfortable and happy and driven to be a great first opinion practitioner whatever the the right term is i think that's fine <laughs> I, think, I think that's i okay. do and, and you know the thing is this drive to be ambitious and this competitiveness it starts at vet school and mm. it's because they pick the creme de la creme of of students and they have good reason to do that obviously they don't want students who who are going to fail and aren't going to make the grade of course you don't you want people who are going to succeed but i think the culture is very much competition and be the best of the best and you must get the highest grade and you all, all the, you know, for the whole of my time at vet school my peers were comparing their marks of what they got I was never one for doing that as long as I passed I was happy mm -hmm. I don't care that you got 
10% more than me, 1% more than me, or I got 10% more than you. I don't care. I passed. I'm moving on. I've done it. I've ticked the box. I'm getting there. My goal mm-hmm. is graduation. I want to be stood in a consult room helping people help their animals. Mm-hmm. And I don't care if I do it with 51% or 99%. I still know the same as you. I'm still as good as you. And do you know what? I've got some skills that you don't have, and you've got some skills that I don't have. We're all going to be really good vets at the end of the day, hopefully. And it doesn't matter how you got there. But I think this competitiveness, this, I must be better. I must be better than you. I must be a better me. I must be the best. I don't think it's doing us any favors in our mental health. I really don't. I I, honestly, so I have spent, you know, so many years of my life, more recently waking up in the morning and thinking, right, see today, I, all the things that I think I'm not great at or do wrong or, whatever I'm thinking today's the day that I'm going to be more professional you know not say stupid things blah 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 blah. and I mean it lasts about 15 minutes on average each day but I'd really try honestly I've tried so and and it's only actually recently that I've completely let go of all that and I just I'm comfortable with being me and I think even around clients as well and this is maybe this is quite I don't know this might be controversial you know I used to be very considered in my decision making and clients would say and if it was your dog what would you do and I would say well professionally you know I'm not able to answer that question that's not you know it's, it's got to be your decision and someone asked me the other day what would you do if it was your dog oh no someone said to me that I'm um, st- really struggling with a decision the other day and I'd gone through all the options and I'd, I said and I couldn't believe the words came out of my mouth I said do you know what I said ask me what I would do if it was my dog ask me what I would do if it was my dog and I'll tell you because do you know what that in that moment it it was a completely appropriate thing to do in the in, in aiding them to make a decision and i'm sure lots of people listening will think that that was maybe not the right thing to do honestly and i was like and i felt so i felt it was like a weight lifted off my shoulders like i'm gonna say it yeah ask me and i'll tell you good and i agree 100 percent. i i you you allude to the fact earlier that i went to vet school as a mature student and i'm glad i did because I've been on the other side of the consult table longer than I've been on this side of the consult table. And I cannot tell you how beneficial that has been to me as a vet, because mm-hmm. I can, I find it very, very easy to empathize with clients. I empathize with their concerns over money. I empathize with their concerns over making the hard decisions. I empathize very much. Now, whether that's to do with my maturity or that's just me, my personality, I don't know. From day one, I have been that kind of vet that you just said that will, say, will give you my honest opinion. I will give you my professional opinion. And then if you ask me, I will also say, look, I think that, you know, unfortunately, it's, it's time. I think this, this and this. And I will lay it out for people. I, and I think they respect that. I think they respect you more for your honesty than if you stand back and it comes across, across as quite clinical. Um, I've always had and prided myself actually if I'm honest on having quite a I don't want to say casual because it sounds unprofessional but a more laid-back consult style when needed I don't make sure I don't stand on the other side of the table all the time I don't see it I see that as a barrier I'll always stand at the end of the table so there's not this barrier between us and you know it's 
it's getting them on board with you and it's bonding with them and getting their trust because if you have trust you have compliance and if you have compliance you have animals that get better and they get their medicine on time and they get their blood tests and when they need them and that at the end of the day is surely surely what we are all in this profession for is it not mm-hmm. so i I, I think that's and I think that's you said earlier that I'm very likable and I think that's why I've always been very lucky that I get on with clients like that because I'm a bit of a social chameleon in that I can I can be on great terms with you know the builder that comes in with his Doberman who's a bit yeah all right all right <laughs> but I can also sit down and have a really quiet chat with the little old lady who comes in with her Pomeranian um Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really pride myself on that. And, and I think what you said earlier about you wake up in the morning and you don't concentrate on the bad things. I try and concentrate and focus on the good things that I do, the, the things I can do well, the skills that I have. And yes, I do pride myself on having pretty much good communication skills with clients. Not that I'm showing good evidence of it now, but I do have quite good communication skills and empathy and I can put people at ease and I can get them to to trust in what I'm saying, that this is the right thing to do. And I don't dictate. I'm not a dictatorial kind of vet. You you must do this. You must do that. If you don't do this, this will happen. I'm very much, this is what I'd like to do. And Mm -hmm. I explain everything because your animal has this illness, which does this to the body, which is why we're seeing this, which is why I did this test. And therefore we need to give it this medicine because that will stop this, which means this will happen. And if they understand that, it's just getting people to understand, communicating. Mm -hmm. If they understand what's going on with their animal and they get it and they can see it, then they will be compliant. And that's what we all want at the end of the day. There isn't a vet here who doesn't want their owner to be compliant, surely. Mm -hmm. No, no, definitely not. Definitely not. So a couple of questions that we have been asking a lot of people that are, are come on to the podcast mm. um the first one being if you had your time again would you go back to vet school no i'd be a stand-up comedian yes good answer <laughs> I, I really wanted someone to be like uh, no and uh, <laughs> do you know ah oh, good, good for you so I, no, i'm joking <laughs> i, I, I listen, listen. I have wanted to, I'm of that generation. I, you, I know this is a podcast, but Scott, you can see it. On the bookshelf behind me, it goes from James Herriot from one side to the other. I am of that generation that was inspired by James Herriot. And not that I ever is, wanted to be a farmer. Is that really, is that, is that really, so for those that I can see, we're, we're on a video call and I can see this bookcase. Is it really James Herriot from front to back, back there? Uh, no, there's some, there's some Jane Goodall, there's some David Attenborough, there's lots of good stuff up there, but there's also a whole shelf of veterinary books, which cost a lot of friggin' money when I was a vet student, so they're staying on that shelf to the day I die, Absolutely. whether they are relevant anymore or not, Um, but I was, I was influenced by James Herrick when I was a kid, I used to watch it, and do you know what, I was also influenced by um, a programme called Vet School, uh, you know, that had Emma Milne and Steve Trudy. Leonard and all the others and Trudy Mostu, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I watched that. I remember being a kid sat cross-legged on my sofa watching that and thinking, oh my God, this is what I want to do. I want to do that. I Please let me do that. I was a million miles from doing it. So I, the day it happened, I, I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Not only have I done it, I'm actually a, at vet school, but I'm also friends with Emma Milne, weirdly. And also, I'm doing a, a, a fly on the wall documentary about being at vet school. This is weird. 
it was so so surreal i couldn't believe it but i remembered being that kid sat on the sofa watching the telly thinking god i want to do that i want to be in that concert room i want to be doing what they're doing and now i am so it kind of has always been a dream to be honest so i can't lie and say it's not but i would still like to be a stand-up comedian as well well i want you to do that too so let's um uh, let's try and make that happen and I definitely I want to I, I want an invite to that first gig that you do in some big comedy club you'll be the only one there I, <laughs> I really you look forward to that yeah we'll have a laugh um and then the the other question is um and I suppose it, it thinking a little bit about you know you were sort of saying that a lot of the people that maybe follow you in social media are vet students correct me if I'm wrong so there's some an audience there that are potentially vet students so I suppose my next question is what one piece of advice would you give just one would you give to the vet students that are listening to what you're saying ultimately what one piece of advice would you give them oh blimey you could give me a bit of notice on this Scott <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's always good just to get your Okay. Get your gut. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of gut to get. Um, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> you need to put that in your act. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the uh, first thing walks out on stage, Scott. So it's going to be there. <laughs> um, listen, the material is writing itself. It's writing itself. <laughs> honestly, just just add Mal. Just it's Judy. Just add Malibu, and I'm a stand-up comedian. Um, one piece of advice. Uh, yeah. Have a good support system and. Mm-hmm. Do your best to not take your work home with you. And I know mm. that sounds, it's almost impossible. In mm. my own experience, it's almost impossible. I, when I was a new grad, I could not leave the practice before I looked to see what all the consults and all the ops were that coming in the next day so that I yeah. could manically go through books and Google YouTube videos of how to do these things. Mm-hmm. And you will do that. And that's okay. It's okay to do that. It's totally fine to do that. If you don't do it, I'd be worried. You're too mm. cocky. You're too confident, and nobody likes to copy your confident, overconfident. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I think try not to take your work home with you, but it, it is harder than it than it looks. Of course, it is. In the early days, you're going to be panicking and you're going to be um, having second thoughts. I would imagine and second guessing yourself. But do you know what? I I don't. All of a sudden, I used to panic all the time about things. That, oh my God, what's coming tomorrow? What's going to happen? What's this? What's that? And I think that's a problem with me, <laughs> you know, like I need to know, I need to know ahead of what's happening so I can plan properly and I can, I can mentally prepare for it. But excuse me. Oh my God, you need to put that out. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember, I don't remember the day that I stopped worrying and mm-hmm. that's good. So I, mm-hmm. I don't remember the day that I stopped worrying. Mm-hmm. I just realized one day I wasn't worrying anymore. I wasn't panicking. I wasn't, you know, somebody turned up without an appointment because it was an emergency and I wasn't panicking. Mm-hmm. And that, ha- that will happen. It will happen at some point. I know you think it won't, but it will. Mm. Um, and my God, that's a good day when that happens because that day you think I'm a vet. Mm. God, that's really interesting. Yeah. I don't know if I ever got to that day that was that bad. <laughs> well, I need to spend is that, that going to happen? Am I going to get there? Um, good. Okay. <laughs> you will. Um, Actually, right. you asked me about career ambition. Do you know what's oh, yeah. really important to me now? Six years down the line. Yeah. And it ties in nicely with everything we've been saying about, you know, being respected and valued, et cetera, et cetera, as a vet. And what's really important to me now is a nice working environment. 
a good team, yeah. a happy team, a close-knit team, a professional team, a team mm -hmm. that cares and looks after one another and is more like a family than anything, and a, a good boss with good working practices who will listen to their employees and they think about their vets, they think about they need the work-life balance and they don't just say it, they mean it, they really yeah. mean it. They will get locums in to cover your colleagues' holidays. You haven't just got to pick up. They will give you 15-minute consults, not 10 minutes. They mm -hmm. will use methadone and not boot. <laughs> they will. Yeah. They, they listen to you and they do these things. That is what, and I found it. I'm very lucky in that I found it now. And, and, I, and I thank everybody uh, that's helped mm. me get there. You know, I remember I was a new grad. It was within my first year of practice. And there was a time when I was consulting and in one consult room, I had a family who had brought their dog down that was seizuring elderly dog. The rest of the family had come down and they were deliberating and, and, and discussion, discussing what they should do, whether they should, should euthanize or not. And it was, you know, quite tense in the room next to that. I had a lady who I had unfortunately had to put her beloved Jack Russell down the summer before when she was on holiday and it was at the dog carers, dog sitters. She'd come in with her two brand new Jack Russell puppies and she wanted to see me. She would only see me because I was the vet that looked after her dogs. And, and I love that actually. I love that loyalty that you get from clients as well because you can build up a really good relationship. So that was great. But there I was, stood in pharmacy, looking at these two doors, one on the left with this family distraught, trying to decide this is it, this, we need to put our dog to sleep. And then on the right, I had a door where there was a lady who was so happy that she had her new bundles of joy that she was going to have for the next 15 years, hopefully, and she was desperate for me to go in and see them. And I was stood there and I was thinking, my God, this is what it's like. This mm -hmm. is what it's like to be a vet. This is actually it. This is what people need to see and need to appreciate is, is the emotional mm -hmm. roller coaster that I needed to walk into those rooms and be two completely different people within minutes of each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people don't realize many, many times. I think clients don't realize that, you know, you, you walk into the room, we call you into the room. We're all happy. Oh, come on in with Barney. He's going to have his vaccines. This is great. You know, 20 seconds before that, we were putting somebody's beloved dog to sleep. We could have been in tears next door. Oh, the times I have had to go into the toilet to sort my face out before I go in to another mm -hmm. consult. People and it's and it's that. and it's no it's no exaggeration like twenty seconds because literally yeah. end and then you literally move on. You literally yes. walk straight into that next room. There is yeah. no time to process what you've mm -hmm. just done. Yeah. The, the, and that could accumulate over a day. You know, the, the, the lack of time you get to process things. And that's why at the end of the day, I have a really good rant to my other half. And I will rant to somebody, to family, to friends, and get it all out there. Um, and that really helps me to do that. I don't, I don't want necessarily to, to discuss it or say anything. I just need to rant. And, and, and it releases all that built up sort of tension and stress from the day. Um, that is the emotional roller coaster because you need time to process. And unfortunately that time to process comes out of your time when, when mm. work is finished and you're driving home. Sometimes I've, I've driven home from work. I've turned the radio off. I just want to sit in silence while I'm driving because so much is going on in my head that I need to process and get that out before I get home. Mm. Um, 
but yeah it, it can be difficult but that was the day i realized my god you can go from the lowest low to the highest high and you have to be what that person in that room needs you to be at that time and not everybody's got that ability to do that and, and deal with them again <laughs> how are you doing good. we're it's nice to have you back more regularly on the podcast we're really pleased to have you back to talk about another i think really very sort of clinically applicable topic to everyone really in small animal practice because these are cases that will come in uh, sort of any time of day and night so we're going to talk about um, aortic thromboembolism in cats. Um, we've we have discussed this a little bit before in a previous episode about kind of drug choices, but actually, I wanted to talk about it and really start by saying, and I don't know this, maybe people will shoot me down for this, but so when I was in general practice over the last sort of fifteen years, um, particularly when I was doing emergency practice, and this is maybe not that long ago, to be honest with you. Aortic thromboembolism in cats often, nine times out of ten, was a really straightforward diagnosis and treatment because these cats would present very acutely off their back legs. Often um, owners would sort of hear them fall off things. And I, I think people out there will will uh, understand when I say they made a very characteristic meow and yowl, like they would... The, the kind of scream that they would make would be all you could hear. I remember taking emergency calls and hearing them in the background and the nurse would be like, that's got a thrombus. That's got a thrombus because it was so characteristically painful sounding. And actually we would diagnose it with a lack of femoral or, or and dist femoral distal pulses, cold uh, feet in the back legs. And then actually we would often euthanize these cats at that point, you know, so it would be, a euthanasia based on that examination. So I suppose my first question is, was that the wrong thing to do? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> um, I think it's such a horrible disease, isn't it? And I think often these cats present and the owners have no idea the cat has heart disease in the first place. And so the first time they know the cat has heart disease is when it presents off its back legs. And you're telling them that the cat's got a grave prognosis. So in the literature, a bilaterally affected cat, so with both hind limbs affected, only 33% of those cats will survive to discharge. Whereas a unilaterally affected limb, probably more likely between 60 and 70% of those um, survive to discharge. And definitely in my experience, the cats that have one leg affected actually do generally go home. Um, Whereas the cats that have both limbs affected generally either get reperfusion injury or unfortunately get euthanized at a later date. So um, I can only think of a few, a handful of cases that I've seen with bilaterally affected limbs that actually do make it to discharge. To be honest, a lot of people would sort of say that, you know, that 33% you've just said there with bilateral disease, it does that maybe seem... I don't know, but does that seem more than expected then? Is that like a third of patients have the potential to survive to discharge? What kind of treatment are those patients getting? So I suppose we have to remember that any of this literature is from a referral setting. So these owners... That's have, a good point. Yeah, so they've already gone to their referring vets and then they've wanted referrals. So yeah. we don't know 
how many cats in general population would survive discharge if they weren't euthanized initially. That's an amazingly good point. Like I, I think that, and, and actually with a lot of studies, we have to remember that, that it's almost like a, 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 pop, a subpopulation of a population, you know, and, 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 and that's a really, really valid point. So 33% of the cases that were sent to basically a cardiologist or a referral centre have survived to discharge. So we were, we were sort, I was sort of saying in that population, what kind of treatment are they getting? What are, what are, what, what are they being given to allow them to survive to discharge? So I think the most important thing that they get is um, an antiplatelet drug. So um, I'm just looking at his abstract now, but Kieran Borgiat, who um, is at Langford, he, when he was a resident, published um, a paper on arterial thromboembolism in 250 cats, and that was in general practice. One significant survival factor was whether the cats received aspirin, clopidogrel, or both. So those cats that didn't get clopidogrel um, or aspirin or both were more likely to die. So that shows how important getting an antiplatelet drug into a, a cat with this disease is. Other drugs that we would use would be something like heparin or low molecular weight heparin. Probably low molecular weight heparin is a preference just because there's less complications associated with giving it. Um, and then also we also have to remember that a subpopulation of these cats with thromboembolism will also have congestive heart failure. Interestingly, it's only about 60%, well, at least in the studies that we have, only 60% of cats that present with aortic thromboembolism will be in heart failure at that time. So it's very easy to decide to think that a cat with ATE that's tachyneic has heart failure as well, but actually it's almost 50-50 that cat might not have heart failure as well. So um, it's just taking, you know, we have to do further diagnostics just to, to decide whether we need to treat a cat for heart failure or whether we can just treat, we use analgesia, which is obviously the most, one of the most important things to, to treat these cats with, um, as well as clopidogrel and or aspirin um, and a low molecular weight heparin or, or unfractionated heparin. So there's a couple of things there just to pick up on. So when we very first started this conversation, you said that obviously it's a surprise to people that their cats have got heart disease. So I think just differentiating between heart disease and heart failure. So will all of these cats have some sort of underlying heart disease? It's a very good question, Scott. Not all of them will have underlying heart disease. I don't know whether you've ever seen any that don't have underlying heart disease. Well, like if you listen to my earlier comments, I think I put most of them to sleep quite promptly. So maybe didn't give them the opportunity, but... I didn't want to highlight that. <laughs> Sorry, God, please. I mean, I'm learning, though. we're all learning things, aren't we? So we're all learning things. But I think, yeah, so so clearly a lot of them will have underlying heart disease that potentially we didn't know about. Yeah. But important in the acute setting when we're treating them and they have presented not all of them will actually be in heart failure at that point is what you're saying. Yeah. So 60% of those cats will have heart failure, but the rest won't. Okay. And actually they don't all have heart disease. I remember a week um, when I was at Liverpool where we had two cats present with suspected aortic thromboembolism and one had um, a spinal issue, a T3L3 lesion, but it was so aggressive. We couldn't 
examine it <laughs> properly. And well, actually three, another one had a pelvic fracture that came in with a suspected aortic thromboembolism. And then the third one had um, a thromboembolism, but was from a pulmonary carcinoma. So pulmonary carcinomas and hepatic carcinomas have been documented to be more commonly associated with thromboembolic disease in cats. Well, there you go. That highlights a really good point that actually there could be other significant pathology, but actually not. Yeah. Okay. So I think, um, so yeah, so we're at that point now where we've told the owners that there is a grave prognosis for and I think we've got to be honest, there's a grave prognosis for their cat. Yeah. But if they are wanting to be treating, uh, then our priorities are yeah. uh, analgesia. And obviously we would be using drugs uh, very much like methadone um, in these sorts of situations. Definitely avoid non-steroids. Yes, absolutely. So obviously, you know, paracetamol, we know not appropriate for cats. Non-steroidal is definitely not appropriate for these sorts of scenarios. Um methadone or a full new uh, opioid would certainly be appropriate um what so you we spoke about um antiplatelet drugs so clopidogrel and aspirin is there anything to say that one of aspirin's better than clopidogrel <laughs> or is there any evidence to say that using both together is better than using one alone or do we not know that so the only um study that we have is the lovely named fat cat study um, I love that. 2015, and they showed that cats that were admitted to a referral setting with aortic thromboembolism, and they were given clopidogrel, so they all survived to discharge, and then they were given clopidogrel or aspirin at home, and they were randomly assigned to one of those two drugs. That study showed that clopidogrel conferred a massive survival benefit over um aspirin um so i think the survival benefit was something like 400 days with clopidogrel um versus one to 200 days with aspirin um and that was to recurrent a recurrent episode of aortic thromboembolism so we know that clopidogrel is superior to aspirin we don't know whether both combined is superior um and there's currently a study going on in the us and um, the UK to see if actually a, a new drug, a new uh, a newer drug, um, a factor 10A inhibitor um, called Rivaroxaban, if that's actually superior to clopidogrel, um, and that's ongoing okay. at the moment. So, what's that study going to be? I mean, I, I I always I think we talked about this before. I think cardiologists, for whatever reason, they love a, a like a a mic drop name like Fat Cat or what's the other one is there a valve yeah valve epic epic bench fly and our and so i joked that we were gonna um i was gonna do this is a terrible joke it's not a joke um with simon actually um who's been on the podcast we were saying that um we were going to do a study about using uh destillate and gallbladder disease and call it sludge Is that shit? Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> never mind. Um, okay, so we don't know whether using clopidogrel and aspirin together is superior. Clopidogrel sounds like it's a winner. If we did, so we talked about this factor 10 inhibitor, rivaroxaban. If we, if you did have rivaroxaban on the shelf, would you be reaching for it in these cases along with clopidogrel? So that's question number one. Question number two is, if people listening don't have rivaroxaban on the shelf... Do you think there's enough evidence to be going out and buying some? 
So an answer to your last question first, your last question is we don't have any evidence okay. in heart disease. I don't know if you have any evidence any in any of the studies that have been done in medicine. Yeah, the only time, well... In like IMHAs or... In IMHAs, that's the only time I use it personally. Um, we have started to, excuse me, the IMHA consensus potentially a little bit you know maybe use it but again is the evidence base strong absolutely not but there's a suggestion that that might be a help excuse me a helpful thing to do so I think um potentially but I think probably a similar situation then yeah interestingly in the human studies when they've compared so these are in stroke patients where they compared warfarin which was their standard go-to um drug to rivaroxaban um or it might be pixaban um, which is a similar factor 10a inhibitor um, there was no necessarily survival benefit it's just that the factor 10a inhibitors had less side effects so warfarin obviously has a side effect where you'll bleed a lot mm-hmm. um, but actually the factor 10a inhibitors don't have that side effect so um, i think in people with strokes at least um, they tend to prefer these factor 10a inhibitors in some instances but we don't have any evidence like that in, in the veterinary literature, as far as I'm aware. And is there any spe- is there any special monitoring that you need to be doing w- when you're using, you know, these sorts of drugs? Do you do you worry about measuring clotting times and different things? No, no. no. I think you can measure factor ten activity levels, mm-hmm. um, and I think some of the studies have shown, um, you know, that you can target drug dosage to like that sort of factor 10 but that's such a specialist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know I, I don't think that's something that we'll be doing anytime soon it's certainly well it's certainly not a bench top thing exactly so i think you know using our, our bench top coagulation pt and aptt um uh you know are very much surrogates for that kind of more specific factor 10a or factor 10 whatever uh measurement so I, I don't think that's something that we have bench top the only other thing that we do um i was we were kind of having it came into conversation the other day about clopidogrel do you ever um advocate kind of loading with clopidogrel where you give more than the recommended dose as a you know as a like a bigger dose to begin with is that ever something that you would uh, do yeah. Yeah, so we will do that. I think there was one paper that showed that a 75 milligram dose of clopidogrel as a one-off, so that's one tablet of clopidogrel to a cat on day one, will increase the levels, the, the, the plasma levels, um, much faster than it would if you gave 18.75 mg per cat per day, which is our standard dose. Mm-hmm. Um, if you use the standard dose, I think it takes something like three to five days to reach peak plasma levels. So mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's a standard as in I don't think it's a standardized approach necessarily um, to load the cats to 75 milligrams of clopidogrel but certainly we used to we do it and I know other places do it as well okay so that may be something that is beneficial yeah we don't know but yeah so we've got our analgesia we're treating our underlying heart failure if that's evident we are uh, giving clopidogrel potentially giving that bigger dose on day one we are considering um uh, potentially the use of other drugs like uh, rivaroxaban and then my last question is well first of all is there anything else and second of all how long do you give them we would also use in the hospital setting heparin or low molecular weight heparin i don't know heparin we don't 
you know, I, I know you're supposed to measure PT and APTT, um, but occasionally we might only give it for a day or so and then and then stop it and then not necessarily measure PT or APTT if that isn't, if you can't do that in practice. Um, but I think we tend to use low molecular weight heparin more commonly because it has less side effects and you don't have to monitor PT and APTT. And I don't think you, you know have to be care you have to be careful still about peripheral sticks and things, but sure. um, it's just a lot easier to use. Interestingly, I had to inject myself with low molecular weight heparin after I had Ted and my son, and um, it actually really stings. Does it, where were you injecting that, Liz? Which part of your body was that? In my thigh. Right. <laughs> okay. But you wouldn't think it, sting, it would sting, would you? Because I don't think I've ever known a cat bother about it, but okay, it, that's it's actually really yeah. stingy. Okay. Well, listen there, that's good to know. Thanks for that, Shane. <laughs> Thanks for oversharing. <laughs> but that's the theme of our, the, the theme of our podcast is to, I think, just to overshare. So that's fine. <laughs> so. Uh, I was listening to your um, Gemma and Katie Ford, and I was laughing about the bit where you said we should have a podcast from the labour room. I was like, oh the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it's only because we've had so many pregnant people. And, and obviously Gemma, um, at the time of recording, <laughs> She is also just about to do whatever it takes. I don't think anyone would want, would want to listen to no, it anyway. Definitely not. We'll see what happens <laughs> with your baby number two, if there is one. Um, yeah, so the yeah the last question then really is, um, yeah, so sorry, I, ha- I hadn't factored in the low molecular weight heparin. Um, so my last question then is, yeah, how long do you give them? I mean, I guess how long is a piece of string? But I think 70, 72 hours. So Dan Hogan is the guy that, in America that's done the majority of this work advocates giving them 72 hours mm-hmm. so within 72 hours you should see some signs that we're getting perfusion back to the limbs and definitely those cats that mm-hmm. do better i would say in my experience get function back quite quickly or warmth or whatever back quite quickly um so less than 72 hours not necessarily we're not talking full function by any stretch of the imagination but there'll be definite signs of improvement fairly quickly after um admission so 72 hours seems a reasonable amount of time if you can keep them comfortable good great well listen that's really um i think very sort of uh, really still a very topical thing for people in general practice and i think um just thinking about that kind of approach particularly in this climate where people people are going to turn around and say well no i don't i'm I don't want you to euthanize my cat and I want to try treatment, you know, and and that I think is yeah. not unreasonable yeah. at all. And, um, and so it's important that we have in our armor, the ability to always do what we can and, and to, to be able to discuss the options with our clients, regardless of prog- prognosis and things. So I think that's a really, really useful um, yeah. um, sort of set of recommendations. So thanks so much for that again. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much to everyone for listening and a massive thank you to Judy for her chat um, as well as Liz for her really interesting insight to uh, aortic thromboembolism. To find out more details about 
us and what we do at VTX, then head over to our website, which is www.vtx-cbd.com. If you're on social media, then head over to our social media platforms and give us a like, follow and share. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Your support is really, truly appreciated. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye.